Good morning. Can you hear me okay? All right. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Pastor Stagg. I really appreciate the invitation. And um, uh, Gina, uh, you know, so for folks who know Gina Evans, she's on the board of the Minnesota Justice Research Center. And, and I appreciate you creating this opportunity to talk more about our work or more so how we look at things, if you will. Um, also, for folks who don't know about Pastor Stagg's cooking skills, good grief, brother, man. We'll be back, my family, we will be back often um, because this, this brother knows how to host. And so I just want to say thank you for having us in your home last night and for meeting um, members of the congregation. Uh, before I get started, I just want to say um, up front that um, you all have been doing your homework. Um, it is impressive to go back and watch some of the sermons and conversations you've been having here at Twin Cities Church. Uh, and I just want to say that Considering what our city and our state have been through in the last year, it is just an appropriate and uh, 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 it is just a very appropriate response. And I, and I feel like this congregation is taking this conversation serious. Everybody and their mama is reading a book. Everybody is calling their best black friend from high school. And um, I think you guys have gone way beyond that in challenging yourselves to think about how the church should show up in the moment that we find ourselves. And so I want to give you credit for that. And then today, um, I wanted to try to answer this question around what should Christians be concerned about in the moment that we find ourselves. And I got some ideas. So um, uh, as you heard, my name is Justin Terrell. I'm the executive director of the Minnesota Justice Research Center. Just a one layer deeper on that, not going to spend a whole lot of time promoting my organization. But one thing that you need to understand about us is that we care about values, which is why it's important that we speak in spaces like this. Values, we believe that are, we have far more in common across our state, and we spend like zero time focusing on our commonly held values. And if you can identify those and put research behind them, then what we can do is work together across differences to build bridges to ensure that our criminal legal system actually becomes in alignment with our commonly held values. Uh, so that's my plug on our organization. I'll leave it there. Uh, moving on, some other things I think you need to know about me is um, before I came to the council, before I came to the uh, MNJRC, I was the executive director of the Council for Minnesotans of African Heritage. I only bring this up because we're going to talk about law enforcement today, and we're going to talk about criminal justice and how Christians should show up in this conversation. And last summer, um, I was an advisor to the governor in the middle of the uprising, uh, charged with representing every black person in the state of Minnesota. And if you can imagine, that was a difficult job. <laughs> And, and so there's some things I want to share from that experience that I feel like are relevant today. Um, before that, I was an organizer uh, uh, leading the Justice for All campaign, which once again, because we're talking about criminal justice, I'll be sharing some stories from that experience. Um, like, I won't be talking a lot about the time that we took over Target's headquarters lobby and demanded a meeting with their executive, with their CEO, who was Greg Steinhoffel at the time, who earned something like $37,000 an hour or something, I can't remember. But yeah, um, I'll leave those stories for another time. Maybe we can talk about that during uh, question and answer. <clears throat> and, and I just bring up some of these past uh, 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 work that I've done because it's this, I'm not a pastor, right? Like I'm, I'm not even a researcher. Like, like I am an organizer at heart. I believe that the world changes when you bring people together around shared values Everyone puts out their hands, and you try to lift the problem together. 
And so I'm desperate for the church to get right on this issue. I'm desperate for the church to get right on race. I'm desperate for the church to get right on justice. Not because I'm trying to, like, you know, move an agenda, but because I'm worried about your souls. And I'm worried about my souls. And I'm worried about my kids and the country that we're living in right now. And the reality is, is that we got some work to do. And so this is not a call-out moment where I'm going to make you feel bad about, you know, being a white person and whatever. This is a call-in moment where we need to look each other in the eye and realize that if we believe in a God who is just, who calls us to righteousness, what, how do we show up in a moment where our state, our, our city, was a spark of a global uprising that has reverberations to this day that is causing people to stay in the streets. Where do we show up in that? Um, so I'll, I'll, before I pray here, um, I'm gonna just make I'm gonna make two more quick points. And um, George, I might need a, a help on uh, time because I'm already behind. <laughs> so. Uh, so I'll be quick, but I want to share a quick story about why I do this work. Why does Justin Terrell work on criminal justice issues? So, um, like most of us, you know what I'm saying, like, we all have our history of how we got here. And I'll share you quickly how I got here. So my grandmother, um, my, so my great-grandfather Horace was a runaway slave. So I can count generations and name, and we have pictures of a man in my family on my mother's side who was a slave. My, great, my great-grandmother and my grandmother grew up in Dimebox, Texas. In that county, there was a record of a lynching. And when I was growing up, a lot of black families have these conversations about uh, a lynching in their family. And for, you know, I'll try not to get graphic because we got kids here. But, but um, the death of a black man uh, that she told me about, he worked with, uh, there's a sharecropping community, he worked with the white family. And uh, on the, you know, they, he was friends with this white family, so they invited him to their, their child's 13-year-old birthday. And at that birthday party, they told him, hey, you got to call little Timmy or whatever his name was. You got to start calling him sir because he's of age now. And, and my grandma's uncle just kind of laughed it off and was like, man, please, I ain't, call, I ain't calling that boy sir. I ain't calling that boy sir. I raised that boy, right? I taught him how to swing a hammer. Like, this is he's my nephew as much as he is your son, right? And... And that was the last time anyone saw that brother. The next time, alive that is, the next time they saw him, you know, it was unfortunate. They found him, what, the story my grandmother told me, hanging from a tree. And the terrorism didn't stop there. There was raids on my grandmother's town by the KKK, stolen land. There was uh, retaliation for trying to integrate the church. And as a result, my grandmother and my great-grandmother left, and my family left Dimebox, Texas, and moved to California. I think you guys talked about this. It's called the Great Migration. And there's a lot more to the story, but I want to pause and just say that it's not a migration. My grandmother and my great-grandmother were refugees in this country, fleeing from terrorism, motivated by white supremacy. And that is where my family's story begins. Where does your family story begin? What is your, how, how, where does the racialized story of your family begin? 
There are not enough white folks in this country talking about that, analyzing that, litigating that, and understanding that it's not just, just because there's a tragic story attached to my racialized identity of birth doesn't mean that there isn't one for yours. And so I want to start there because we need to understand that there is not been to my family had some sort of impact on your family because that was a phenomenon across the board in the South and how people were treated when they got up north. And you need to start asking yourself, where was my family during that? If you watch Eyes on the Prize, you often see like the angry white people in the, in the streets, and then they tell the story of Ruby Bridges. We need to start telling the story of the angry white folks screaming at Ruby Bridges. Are y'all with me so far? So I, I want to let you know that that is why I do this work. Not because I'm anxious to tell my personal story, but I'm anxious to remind us that it's all the same story. That the impact on my family that what my family went through, what your family has gone through, that those dynamics are not detached. That you can't build a wall for, through them. You may think you can, but we'll come back to that in a little bit. And next before, uh, I just want to introduce a, couple, uh, a scripture that's going to guide this conversation. Um, but first, we, I, I got to talk about James Baldwin, who, who is someone I lean on often. So when we think about this question, what... Christians should be concerned about in the criminal legal system. I'm, I'm brought to this quote by James Baldwin that I use often that says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can, change, can be changed unless, until it is faced. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. There is no running from this problem of the failure of the criminal legal system in our society. There is no running from racism in America. <clears throat> and we have to face this problem. We have to decide that the way things are today can be better for, for generations tomorrow. And that requires a whole bunch of awkward conversations. It requires we build some bridges with people we really don't like. It requires that, you know, for me, I think about my role in this, and then, which reminds, which is why I stick so close to Jonah. I am the victim of police brutality. I was assaulted by police when I was 13 years old. And I sit at a table with law enforcement where we try to decide the licensing regulations of every law enforcement officer in the state. That is not a fun exercise. That is a calling, not like a hobby. <laughs> you know? And so, which is why I want to bring up Jonah. So if you know this story of Jonah, God said to Jonah, hey, Go prophesy to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is like modern-day Mosul in Iraq. If, so this is like a big, popular, powerful city at the time. And Jonah's a minor prophet, which you guys have spent a lot of time in, in Amos and Micah, so I felt like Jonah was good to, to kind of follow up with. Um, and, my, and Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh and tell him, hey, you got to repent because of your wicked ways. And Jonah was like, I'm not going. Not because, not because he didn't want to be obedient to God, but he just really didn't like the Ninevites, right? They oppressed his people. Who wants to go and prophesy to their oppressor? That is not something that we like to sign up for. More so, like, how does the oppressor behave, right? It's something that I like the story of Jonah that we, to, to look at through the story of Jonah. Uh, so in the belly of the whale, which swallowed him up to take him to where God told him to go, um, I'm 
paraphrasing there because I, I feel like people know this story, so I'm not going like, to read it word for word. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you. This is Jonah 7. Uh, 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 this is Jonah chapter 2, verse 7 uh, through 10, I believe. Uh, when my life was... I clearly have a typo in my notes. <laughs> when, my life, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. We need to stop running away from stuff, y'all. We need to stop running away from this conversation on justice, which I don't believe this congregation is doing, which is why I want to remind you that when it gets uncomfortable, don't turn and run. The other thing is we need to start praising God for the opportunity to push this situation over the cliff. (laughs) We need to praise God for the moment we find ourselves in, where for the first time in this country, we can reckon with what we have done to each other throughout the history of our country. This is not a cursed moment in history. This is a blessing. This is a huge opportunity. We've gotten more done in the last year than we've gotten done in the last 40. And I look at folks like my wife and Gina and think about the work of Second Chance Coalition and how young people in our state no longer have to be shackled for no reason or strip searched or or have the fact that we have a study um, looking at how we hold adult prison time over young people's heads to intimidate them to try to behave right, but 90% of those cases are executed. That is a gross failure of justice, a miscarriage of justice, if you will. And the opportunity we find ourselves in right now, while we caught hell for a year, y'all, I know it was rough, but this is our opportunity to lean in and stop running away and actually praise God for the opportunity to wrestle with the sins of our fathers mothers, cousins, and all the mother folks. So um, let me actually think I'm just going to skip this talking point because I really feel the need to pray right now. (laughs) Pray with me if you will. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to share with um, this congregation today. Uh, Thank you for getting our family out of bed, uh, fueled up on coffee, prayer, and out the door to be here. It is a blessing. You are a blessing to us. You are an amazing, loving God, and I am grateful for you, and we praise you today. We ask you to look low on, on our city, on our community, on our families. We ask you to forgive us of our sins, the things that we struggle with that we, when we don't work hard enough to be a better person, Lord, we ask you to speak to us and uh, arouse a message in our hearts that can lead us um, through the day. And, and that's what I ask, Lord. I know that there's a message from you today. There's not a message from Justin Terrell. And I just humbly submit my will, my spirit, my soul to you so that you may speak through me in these moments. Um, watch over our loved ones. Keep us safe. Uh, tie us together as we spend some time in your word and in fellowship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
So let's talk about <clears throat> having a reckoning. You spent a little bit of time here, so I'm not going to go down a long list. I didn't bring my spreadsheet of research this morning. I figured that wouldn't be super fun. But let's remember that the way things are is not an accident, right? My family didn't end up in Minnesota because they thought the weather was nice. They ended up in Minnesota because they were fleeing terrorism. <laughs> we are blocks away from the Rondo neighborhood. And let me remind you that you don't build highways through every populous, uh, growing, successful black community in the country by accident. Let me remind you that the police chief in Duluth is the descendant of a white woman who accused four innocent black men of sexual assault and that their ancestors aren't here. And the one that survived the lynching in Duluth actually uh, still went to prison and had, a, had a, a pardon granted to him this year. That doesn't happen by accident. Let's not forget that mass incarceration, the war on drugs, um, and George Floyd. You don't kneel on a man's neck for eight minutes, nine minutes, by accident. These are people-made problems. And what I'm often reminded of is that there's this quote by Thomas Jefferson, and I'm just going to pause for a minute and cut the tension a little and just say that I heard this quote while listening to uh, Buster Rhymes' new album, and <laughs> Farrakhan went on and on about all kinds of stuff in this like sample. And then he quoted Thomas Jefferson, and I was like, I am preaching about that. <laughs> Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever, is what Thomas Jefferson said in a paraphrase. Thomas Jefferson, a founder of our nation, understood we had some problems. And while Thomas Jefferson, you know, was, was a deist and had different uh, theological ideas, um, the reality is that if God is just, America was in trouble. You cannot establish land of the free and have slave at the same time. It just doesn't work that way. And bringing this back to Jonah, I think that often the, the focus of criminal justice issues in our society is focused on the movement, the people like myself who are leading the marches and the actions and, the, and, and trying to engage the governor and powers that be to, to move policy. And I, and I think sometimes we don't let the folks in power actually get enough of the mic or enough of the story. They get plenty of the mic, let's be honest. Um, because in the book of Jonah, what happened when after he was spit up by that fish? He went and prophesied to the city of Nineveh. And he brought a message. He said, y'all only got 40 days and it's over. And the king and the nobles said, that's good for me. That's enough. <laughs> and, they, and they covered themselves in sackcloth. And they said, grab everybody, grab the, the animals, every, they, everything shut down. And it's just interesting to me because we can shut down things for COVID. <laughs> but when you think about what our criminal justice system is doing, we just try to ignore it and keep walking, running away from what we know is true, that there is a miscarriage of justice happening. 
by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herd or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call uh, urgently on God. Let them give up the evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring them the destruction he threatened. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we kind of got to get this right. What happens if we don't change how we do policing in our state? What happens if we don't change how we do corrections in our state? What happens? Well, the next, every time, uh, a good friend of mine lives across the street from, um, from what used to be called Calhoun Square. And so we go over, sit on his patio, and we just watch the protests happen in front of his, 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 uh, his house, his apartment or, or condo. Um, that's not going to stop. Every time something pops off, we are going to find ourselves dealing with this same issue. And that has, a, that has a deteriorating effect for public safety across the board. If you can't trust the cops, or maybe you do trust the cops, but maybe you don't trust people to respond to you for talking to them or calling them. Or maybe you're worried about the attitude of police since they're under so much pressure. Can you really trust officers to do their job well when trust is so low. It is actually one of Sir Robert Peel's key principles, of his nine principles of policing. Sir Robert Peel, who's a, considered the modern day um, father of, of, of policing, set up the first um, police department in London. Principle number two was that you can't do this work without trust. So everyone actually is in trouble if we don't figure out a way to increase trust. How am I doing on time, George? Okay. All right. All right, I'm going to run through this last little section here. And so my point is, is that we have had people prophesying in the streets for over a year now. And we got a conviction, which I'm not thrilled about because a conviction is not justice. A conviction is accountability, right? And the... The message is clear that the way we do justice needs to change. And it's also clear that if we don't change it, our cities could burn again. And for, my, for the sake of my kids, like, I don't want to go through that again. Anybody else trying to sign up for that? Then we should probably figure out a way to fix our system. Um, so I got three quick points I'm going to make. Um, so number one, just we don't have a justice system. We have a crime and punishment system, a crime and punishment system that's really good at protecting the profits and property of the wealthy and dividing and controlling the rest of us. And these are like core print. This is what happens when you try to develop a uh, criminal justice system under capitalism. Not going to go into like a big like capitalist critique here. Um, I feel like you guys spent some time looking at the different like styles of justice through a political lens. And, and you can capitalism, social, whatever. That's not the discussion today. But the reality is, is that we do live in a society that prioritizes profit over people sometimes. 
And an example of this is like how much you got to pay for a phone call when someone's incarcerated. Anyone got one of them calls before? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Or the fact that the state takes 10% of the money you put on someone's books, right? Or, you know, they call it in prison, the guys that I talk to in prison call it the silent violence. Because anytime you try to support someone who's incarcerated and behind the wall, like you get taxed for that. And there is a report that came out of the Ella Baker Center um, uh, out in Oakland, California, called Who Pays? And this report found that Who Pays, because of the racial disparities in our criminal justice system, normally like women of color pay, are like supplementing our criminal legal system. This is ridiculous. And this is just the beginning, the tip of the iceberg. If we could spend three weeks here talking about the, the, the issues in the criminal legal system. But the question in front of us, if we're going to ask a question about what should Christians be concerned about, the question I have is, um, do you think God is okay with what our criminal legal system is capable of? Do we believe that a just and righteous God is okay with how the Department of Corrections just handled COVID? Is it okay with uh, the, consist- the fact that in 150 years of policing, one white man has been incarcerated for the death of a black man unjustly? In 150 years? No one went to prison. The only person that went to prison for the Clayton Jackson McGee lynching was the fourth black man that stood accused, and they, they actually incarcerated him. Do we think God is okay with that? Is God even okay with the idea of putting people in cell blocks, in a box, and not offering any services to try to get people to get their mind right while, while they're in the care of the commissioner? We'll come back to that. The second point I want to make is that, and you guys have spent some time on this again, that justice is a relational concept. And how we begin to return to righteousness or reconciliation, right relationship. So I just want to offer up that too often, um, I think with the scales analogy, you look at weight over here, weight over here, and you try to balance it, right? And the reality is that what I like to focus on with justice is the bar that connects the two. Our current criminal legal system basically cuts off one of the scales and puts it in a box, right? How are you supposed to get justice in that situation? There's no reconciliation. There's no opportunity to repay what you owe. In one of your previous sermons, you guys looked through laws that actually um, talked about how to repay what you owe in certain situations. We don't have that situation. We have a criminal legal system that focuses all its attention on punishing one person and then does nothing for the person who gets harmed. And I just don't believe that that's how God operates. As a matter of fact, we look in his word and we find that that is not how he operates. That even in, even in, in, in situations where you get messages from people in the bosom of Abraham or on the other side, right, like there's still a relationship happening there where they are talking to each other across the big divide and and being like, hey, man, this ain't what's up. (laughs) You don't want to come down here. 
We need to maintain relationships with people who cause harm when it's healthy and safe to do so. And I would suggest that far too often we write folks off and we don't extend the same grace and mercy that's been extended to us as those who are saved for very small things. <laughs> the number, I think the number two or three um, highest population of folks incarcerated in Minnesota prisons is for drugs. And the largest, in the, in the nation on earth that uses more drugs than anyone else in the world. <laughs> I think we should think of some different responses to that issue. Um, and, and I just want to throw out that in order to, in order to maintain relationship in a, and focus on justice, that we have to do some things. We have to be in relationship, which means requires proximity. We have to have courage, be willing to take a risk. And these are things that um, our current criminal legal system prevents us from doing. 90% of the officers in Minneapolis don't live in the city. So how do I know that they care about my community when they show up? when what I've seen is a whole lot of the opposite. And then number three, and I'll start to wrap up here. I think time-wise we're, we're good to start wrapping up? Okay. Because I'm really anxious to have like a conversation. Um, so, so as I start to like think of the things I want you to be remembering is that, our, that really is coming back to where we started, is that our liberation is actually bound to each other. So you guys have spent a lot of time talking about, um, uh, I feel like, uh, justice through like this political lens that you guys covered a few weeks ago, which was really powerful. But um, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between like revolution and liberation. So in Nineveh, had the, had the, uh, the oppressed took over the king, and said, we're going to repent and we'll be the, you know, we'll, we'll follow God's way. Or if they took over the, and if the, yeah, if the oppressor took over and said, we're in charge now, that's revolution. You know, revolution's per minute. Think a circle, right? Liberation, and, and so let's talk about the pros and cons of revolution, right? Is that there's a change there in the way that things are, you know, actually shift and change. The cons are, is that if you're in the oppressed group, are you really interested in becoming the oppressor? And is that really your only option? And I think what God tries to teach us and tries to show us is that that is actually not your only option. Jesus was tried to turn, people tried to turn Jesus into a political figure. And in a lot of respects, he was. He had an occupied force. He had folks looking for a different kind of leader, right? Um... But what God did in the gift of Jesus Christ is to under, help us understand that there's something much greater than just having governmental control and power. Salvation, liberation, be in the world, but don't be of the world. So while we are here and that we understand that the criminal justice system is what it is and none of us really have, I mean, raise your hand if you're a commissioner or serve on the public safety committee, no? Okay. Um, the reality is that we actually have to depart from the current cycle that we are in and start to imagine or reimagine, if you will, something completely different. That is what liberation is. And then you have to build a path to get there. And that is the work ahead of us. 
Adrian Marie Brown says, all organizing is science fiction. You have to believe in space bridges and stuff like that. I mean, you know, like you have to believe in something that is not currently experiencing. And that sounds very familiar to me of the biblical uh, definition of faith. There are things that we believe in that have not come yet. And we are certain of it. So what should Christians be thinking about when it comes to the criminal legal system? You should be certain that justice is coming. You should have faith that God is not happy with what we got and that justice is coming. And then you should get to work (laughs) helping to build a path to get there. Is this helpful? Because the reality is our liberation is bound to each other. The early church was up against, you know, lions <laughs> in arenas and stuff like that, right? They couldn't even, they couldn't even preach, the, they couldn't even meet and assemble during the daytime. Their liberation was bound to each other. Why did they do communion? Because, I, I mean, there's a lot of... There's a lot of uh, ideas around why they did communion and where the communion feast comes from and whatnot. But why did they eat together? You know, because that's, that's, some of them may have not got meals outside of that meal because of the persecution they were feeling, we're, we're, we're dealing with. And I just want to remind you that our liberation is bound to each other. We have to rely on each other to get through this moment to make sure we don't try to get back to normal, but that we try to have faith in a justice that is yet to come and labor together to get there. Um, so I'll close, I'll close with this. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a saying that, uh, that we have that, that, I, that I appreciate in the community is that, um, is that um, our ancestors did a lot more with less. And um, I... <laughs> want to challenge you to stop running. And let me, let me explain what running in 2021 sounds like. Well, I just don't know enough. I haven't read enough books or articles. Running in 2021 sounds like, um, well, I just don't know any black people. Pause. Raise your hand if you or someone you know has been impacted by the criminal legal system. You know somebody. Running in 2021 sounds like, well, I just don't have time. I just don't have enough time to volunteer or whatever. Who said you need to volunteer? You got time to argue with your racist uncle at holidays. (laughs) And don't act like you don't put a whole lot of prep into those arguments. For months, you'd be to think, oh, man, and if he says this, I know I'm going to say this. And Like, you got time for Facebook and Twitter and Instagram or whatever? Do you got time for justice? And if you don't, how does God feel about that? I don't think you have a choice. That's what running in 2021 sounds like. Well, I just don't know better. You know. If you are a Christian, 
who reads the word, who meditates on it daily, is an all-powerful God who created the universe, that what we are dealing with from the systems we've created, that this ain't what's up. You know. And if you know that, you can't run away from it. So that's what I need you to be concerned about. <laughs> um, I will close with a quick story, um, and then me and Pastor Stag can, can have our Q&A. Um, there's a brother who's very close to me. I won't say his name because he kind of gets a lot of shine right now, and, 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 and you know, I just think you know, it, he, doesn't need, he doesn't need me promoting him right now. So I'm, I'm going to leave his name out of it just because you know, I'll give the brother his privacy. Um, when he was incarcerated, uh, incarcerated, living in a box, a cell block, right? I was running a campaign to, um, to uh, restore voting rights for uh, people who are on probation, living in community, on probation, um, but are unable to, work, uh, unable to vote because they have felony convictions. So that's the law in Minnesota. So if you just have a gross misdemeanor or whatever, if you're on probation, you can vote. But if you have a felony probation, you, you're not allowed to vote until you finish that probation. Um, so I worked with this brother, you know, while he was incarcerated, and we, we um, organized 101 letters to the governor, Dayton, at the time, and, and had him, his son, deliver those letters to Governor Dayton for like a photo op, Right. 101 letters. I still, I still keep, I have every one of those letters. I keep them with me. I made copies. Later on, uh, in 2016, me and this brother were uh, working to keep a private prison from opening. And it's a long story why private prisons are a bad thing, but just, you know, in general, do you want to profit? Do you feel like the people who profit off folks being incarcerated would have the best interest and prioritize the humanity of the people they're incarcerating for profit, that equation don't add up. And so that's just my, my primary, you know. But there is a whole other conversation about jobs, that uh, this prison would create jobs in Appleton, Minnesota, and, and these guys and the folks in Appleton, Minnesota need these jobs. Well, we did the research. No one, in, no one that works for those prisons lives in Appleton, Minnesota. Like, they all drive in, right? And so what you had was this really high unemployment rate in Appleton, Minnesota. And I started to ask questions like, well, where else, who else has a high unemployment rate? And we're like, oh, North Minneapolis. Turns out Appleton, Minnesota, North Minneapolis in 2016 had very similar unemployment rates and poverty rates. And we're having a very similar experience. And so me and this brother who was incarcerated at the time, we, we, we recruited families and brothers on the north side who were uh, having a hard time finding jobs and had criminal records. And we put them on the phone and we told them to call folks in Appleton. And we gave them a script and we said, talk to these folks in Appleton about this prison and let's see if we can convince them to call their legislator, a guy named Representative Tim Miller, a Republican uh, uh, Representative Tim Miller, from, and, and uh, say we want to keep this prison closed. And they did. And you want to know what happened? Do you think they, they, they were, you know, a bunch of you know, African-American guys are, felonies calling Appleton, Minnesota, what do you think they found? 
in those phone calls. They found brothers in arms. They realized that the folks in Appleton had just as much in common with the folks in North Minneapolis. And Tim Miller got so many phone calls that he actually wrote an op-ed about it. It was a a high point for me that he responded. But beyond that, Tim and I went on NPR on Tom Weber's show, and and we had a debate about this issue. And beforehand, I set it up so this brother who was incarcerated could call in and, and speak on why this prison was a bad idea. Someone from prison helping us understand why this private prison was a bad idea. And it was a phenomenal interview. Um, Tim Miller uh, voted for the public safety bill that passed just a few weeks ago. Tim Miller is still very much a Republican. He's still very much white. He's still very much from rural Minnesota. He's still very much a Trump supporter. (laughs) And he's still very much invested in justice. And if that guy is fighting for justice, and if my guy who is incarcerated is fighting for justice, and if you know the truth and salvation and love of God, In 2021, you ain't allowed to run no more, no matter how it looks, no matter how it sounds. We need all of you because we don't have a vision of justice in our society right now, and we don't have a justice system. But if we work together on this together, we can vision what that looks like. We can insert our commonly held values. And we can actually take advantage of this moment that feels like a really hard time (laughs) and make it a blessing. Um, And 